join us for the TVO Telethon, March 23rd and 24th, and donate early for a chance at great prizes. Visit telethon.tvo.org for more information. For more in-depth perspectives and interesting stories, sign up for our daily newsletter at tvo.org daily. The agenda this week examined what's behind the September surge in COVID-19 cases and the prospects for getting a vaccine here in Canada. The agenda's week in review begins south of the border and why post-election chaos might really matter north of the border. I am going to say openly, I think the likelihood of a civil war in the United States is very low. Shannon Stein is from Missouri on this. In other words, <laughs> show me. Okay, Stephen Marsh, show her. Well, I mean, I think it depends what you mean by civil war, right? I mean, when I wrote the article for The Walrus that this book is based on in 2018, even coming up with the argument that America was in civil strife was hard to make. Um, but I think we're obviously there now. There are roving battles on the streets of major American cities. Um, you know, I think the civil war that we're talking about is not really armed encampments, but really uh, the breakdown of society, things like what we've seen in the Middle East in places like Syria and Libya and so on. And that seems to me much more likely. I mean, the, the book that I'm working on deals with sort of deep models. Um, when you see things like what's happened in the Supreme Court right now, where essentially the legal system of the United States is now a partisan spoil for party politics, that is classic uh, prelude to civil war. Um, when you see things like, you know, the best available models show us that there's going to be about 13 million climate change refugees within the next 20 years in America, you know, that's not a million years away, that's in our lifetimes. Uh, when you see uh, the rise of the far right in the United States, which is totally un underrated, uh, you know, the, like the violence that we're seeing in Oregon, the violence that we're seeing on the streets, which is basically left wing violence, is, is really going to be nothing uh, compared to when the armed militias uh, really start to make themselves felt, which which they haven't yet. So, you know, I don't want to be alarmist. But on the other hand, I think that when you talk to the experts at PRIO, when you talk to uh, the hyper-partisanship experts, effective partisanship, what you're seeing here is a very classic spiral where the system of government no longer is legitimate to people. The legal system is no longer legitimate to people. And violence, you know, violence and chaos are the inevitable result. And I think, um, you know, not to not to put too fine a point on it, but this isn't a prediction anymore. We're this is in progress. This is not an incipient thing. This is this is happening right now. Wesley Work, you get to break the tie. <laughs> I think I'm leaning more actually in, in uh, Janice's camp on this. I mean, everybody is is right to be worried. Uh, about what the next steps in American politics uh, might uh, might hold, both for the United States and for the world. But I think everything depends on, on an issue that we need to focus on, which is the question of the conduct of the American presidential election and the question of whether or not the outcome will seem as will, will be seen as legitimate, both within the United States and in the international system. And I think we all have to hope that that a, a path to legitimacy will be found um, and, and the election will be accepted no matter who wins. But if that if we descend into a, a period where there's widespread disbelief in the outcome uh, of the election, that could be 
But I say just could be. That could be the trigger for, for some outbreaks of violence and certainly for longer term instability. But I think the key question is, what is the election going to look like and is it going to be perceived as, as legitimate? Well, you ask what the election is going to look like. I want to know more. And Stephen, I'll come back to you on this. I want to know more about what a civil war is going to look like, because, you know, 150 years ago, it was a northern army versus a southern army and a half a million mm -hmm. people were dead four years later, five years later. You know, it's hard to imagine that's what it would look like today. There, there is oh, no, no, no southern army. So tell us no. what it looks like in your view. It looks like arms insurgents. It looks like pockets of militias, which already exist. The three percenters, uh, you know, sovereign citizens alone, like the the the, the people, the minimum number of sovereign citizens in the United States are 600,000 people. So that dwarfs anything in the 60s. Right. Like we're, I think that the far right in the United States is a huge pop part of the population and they're extremely armed and they are extremely uh, filled with righteousness. And what, what we'll see is, you know, exactly what you see in Syria where, well, not exactly, of course, but like when I imagine it, it's not armed encampments. It's just the breakdown into tiny pockets of little loyalties, which we're already there. Right. Well, we're, let me go to like, Janice. That's, Stein that's on already that. happening. OK, let the, me go the to question Janice. is when the larger structures. But like the question is about this election is, well, if it fails. But, you know, the larger trend is that all the institutions in the United States are becoming illegitimate to the people. Like it doesn't matter what happens with the Supreme Court in, you know, in horse race politics for now. Half of the country, one way or the other, is going to feel that the Supreme Court is just a bunch of partisan hacks. Once that happens, you know, the, the, you lose stability, like stability is gone. Where are these new cases, to the best of your knowledge, coming from? Yeah, thank you. That's, that's a great question. So locally, which I think we are very similar to other jurisdictions, what you'll see is that it's young adults. So they have currently in our area twice the rate, those between 20 and 39 of any other age group. And actually within that, we also see that it's about predominantly being driven by males. So we're a university town in Guelph, and I'm sure that other university towns are also seeing this. But young adults are predominantly the newest cases that we're seeing. Dr. Lowe, what would you add to that? You know, I would I would agree it is young adults uh, and certainly in our region, we're also seeing 60 percent of our cases, uh, people aged between 20 and 49. Uh, in general, what we find in our region is that uh, these are not only uh, the social gatherings, which uh, certainly have been made uh, highlighted uh, in, uh, in a lot of the recent communications, but it's a bit of a cycle uh, between what we're seeing in workplace outbreaks and then these individuals then bring it home with them and then out and about when they're socializing and then back into the workplace. So it's this general cycle that we keep seeing uh, between these three settings uh, where we're really focusing all, our, all of our efforts on the surge at this time. Hmm. Dr. Furness, take us back to uh, an earlier time when we were doing better and we were seeing for a time, you know, about 100 cases a day. What were we doing so well back then that apparently we're not doing as well today to keep the numbers low back then? The number one thing I land on is actually weather. We can get away with a lot when the weather is hot and it's humid. Those are very protective. That's starting to disappear. So that's number one. But I think number two is toward the end of the summer, a lot of folks throwing up their hands and feeling frustrated and feeling lonely and looking at the low case numbers and saying, I'm going to hug my friends. I'm going to have the party. I'm going to do that because it's been too long. And that's understandable, although, of course, it comes with the consequence that we're seeing. 
So uh, fair to say it was inevitable as the weather got colder that even if we just kept doing the same stuff, it was going to get worse. Of course, the weather hasn't really gotten colder yet, just a little bit. But every drop in temperature, we could expect, according to some models, a 3% increase in cases. So as the temperature continues to drop, my concern is obviously we're going to see more and more. Hmm. Dr. Lowe, do you know, is this the so-called second wave everybody has been anticipating? You know, I think it's really challenging, and I can only really speak to the numbers we're seeing in Peel. Um, but it also uh, is important to know where the cases are. Uh, and in Peel, uh, fortunately, at the end of our investigations and our contact tracing, uh, we're figuring out about 80 to 85 percent of uh, these cases, they have a known exposure. So um, it, it's a little different than a second wave where we would see widespread propagated community transmission. Uh, at this time, most of the new cases, even though the numbers are high in Peel, uh, are people that are connected to known exposures in workplaces, social gatherings, and in homes as well. Well, let me put this in a bit of an odd way for, for you, Dr. Mercer. Are, are you glad you're not the medical officer of health in Peel or Toronto right now, where the biggest outbreaks seem to be? Um, well, I would agree, although Dufferin County is right beside uh, the region of Peel. So we are seeing, and in fact, this past weekend, that's where most of our cases were being driven. And of course, because we are um, colleagues, um, we are also supporting region of Peel with their cases. Very glad to hear that. Um, Dr. Furness, what about you on this issue of whether we're seeing a second wave yet right now? We only ever know in hindsight when we look back and see when the wave began. I don't think we're quite there yet. I think Dr. Lowe nailed it. We're, we know what the pattern is there. It doesn't look like it's accelerating in the community to the extent that I might use the word second wave. Remember, in June and into July, we had 400 cases a day or so, and it stayed pretty stable. It was frustrating at that level, but it, it showed us that that can happen, and that may be what's happening now. My concern is when the temperature really drops. So I think we're, we're not seeing the spike that, to me, that says second wave yet. Nicola Mercer, let's go over what we now know compared to what we knew in the spring when this thing first hit. What do you know about how the virus works today versus six months ago? Yeah, thank you for the question. I think what we didn't realize early on, we thought of it more of as a respiratory virus only. And what we are learning is that this is really actually a multi-organ virus, uh, which is why when we see people in a hospital, we're seeing a little bit of a different trend. We also know that when people recover from this virus, uh, different from perhaps other coronaviruses that we've seen, is that some of them actually have a very long period of recovery with prolonged symptoms afterwards. So this was something that we actually didn't know about this virus. And I would say the other thing that we're learning is that this is really about human-human interaction and less about fomites or what by that we mean what we touch. So it's less about the things that we're around and more around the people that we're around. So all of that time we spent uh, washing off our mail and, and you know being careful not to touch countertops and that, that was probably exaggerated. Is that what I'm hearing? Well, those are important things to do for a lot of reasons about keeping your hands clean. But what really is important, it's those human to human interactions and less about the paper that we touch and the things that we touch. So those are still important. And I'm not saying that you can't get COVID from those things, but really people are getting COVID from each other. Let me just start by reading an excerpt from Foreign Affairs magazine that'll get us off to the races here with our discussion. Sheldon, if you would, the graphic. That sort of vaccine nationalism, or a my-country-first approach to allocation, will have profound and far-reaching consequences. Without global coordination, 
countries may bid against one another, driving up the price of vaccines and related materials. Desperate governments may also strike short-term deals for vaccines with adverse consequences for their long-term economic, diplomatic and strategic interests. The result will be not only needless economic and humanitarian hardship, but also intense resentment against vaccine hoarding countries, which will imperil the kind of international cooperation that will be necessary to tackle future outbreaks, not to mention other pressing challenges such as climate change and nuclear proliferation. Okay, let's get into this. Is geopolitical cooperation as important, Dr. Bernstein, in your view, as acquiring the vaccine itself? Uh, the short answer is yes, Steve. Uh, I think it's absolutely critical that uh, we work together, we being the nations of the world, the community of nations, because this virus knows no borders. Uh, so uh, if we're going to defeat the pandemic and the virus, we all need to be working together. Jason, what say you on that? Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, you know, it's been said many times before that uh, the pandemic doesn't end here until it ends everywhere. Uh, and certainly speaking from the perspective of uh, an international medical humanitarian organization uh, that responds to uh, conflicts around the world and, and provides medical assistance to people who are affected by conflict, natural disasters, disease epidemics, and, and uh, other emergencies, we're absolutely uh, concerned about how uh, the people that we provide care for are going to be able to access this vaccine and it's essential that they do. Alex, what are you finding in your reporting on this? You know, I think it's worth uh, acknowledging that uh, the argument for, for working together and for global collaboration is absolutely something that resonates with readers. Um, I've heard this quite a bit from people I've spoken to, that they're very proud of the role that Canada plays on the global stage. Um, but at the same time, I think it's worth acknowledging um, that Canada is, is kind of in a tricky position here. Um, we've heard from officials as well that they really value working together. We feel a sense of obligation to the global community. Um, but while there's been kind of some movements toward a global a global uh, collaboration, the COVAX facility, um, obviously being the big example, um, some big players are not participating. The U.S. obviously made headlines, uh, you know, with that decision. And so we're seeing a lot of countries, um, you know, making it very clear that they're putting money into this, but the fruits of that are for their citizens alone. And so in that context, I think Canada really is trying to sit on the fence a little bit. Um, they're saying we value this global collaboration, um, but at the same time, they're really you know hedging their bets and making sure we lock down um, some agreements of our own. Well, uh, okay, let me follow up with Alan on that. I mean, I, I, th I think it's fair to say the United States has been out there much more aggressively and more and I think earlier than Canada, in signing bilateral deals with various pharma companies to get something going here. How does that affect Canada's efforts to get a vaccine for our citizens in this country? Oh, I think we've done quite well, actually. In fact, the latest announcement was just yesterday when Minister Anand announced that Canada had purchased uh, vaccines from Sanofi Pasteur GSK, a partnership between those two companies. Uh, and prior to that, she had announced uh, four different vaccines all of which we had been recommended by us at the vaccine task force. So I, I think we have secured um, what we were trying to do at the task force, which is vaccine candidates that represent the different platform. Because at the end of the day, we don't know which vaccine is going to work. And we don't know which platform is going to work and also be uh, safe. So we now have secured a lot of doses uh, from the three different platforms that everybody wants. So I think we're doing quite well. Alex, I wonder if you could tell us about something called the COVAX, C-O-V-A-X initiative. What is that? 
Definitely. So COVAX is really kind of the big global effort to try to get um, countries to come to the same table, table uh, and work together in terms of uh, vaccine, uh, both procurement and distribution. Uh, and so we know as of Monday that Canada is in. Um, so we're going to be part of this uh, this move to kind of pool money, invest in a slate of, of vaccine candidates, and then in the hopes that one or several actually work out, um, those eventual doses uh, will be shared among the member countries. So it is a move towards the global community working together. Um, but critically, there's a second piece of this. Um, it's called the COVAX um, AMC, uh, or Advanced Market Commitment, and it's the fundraising arm um, that would raise money to make sure that countries that wouldn't otherwise be able to afford it, like Canada, are also able to participate in this. So I think it's going to be really critical um, to watch not only um, uh, the fact that Canada is participating in this, but whether or not we're going to step up and fund that move um, to make sure that countries that can afford it also have a seat at the table. My understanding is that conversation is ongoing. Um, we could expect news um, relatively shortly, um, but that's something definitely for Canadians to watch. And that's just some of what we covered this week on the agenda. For more, including those conversations in full, you can always visit our website. That's tvo.org, our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash the agenda, or our Twitter feed. That's twitter.com slash the agenda. The Agenda with Steve Pakin is brought to you by the Chartered Professional Accountants of Ontario. CPA Ontario is a regulator, an educator, a thought leader, and an advocate. We protect the public. We advance our profession. We guide our CPAs. We are CPA Ontario. And by viewers like you. Thank you.